Good afternoon. Thank you so much for join it, joining us today for the panel discussion, Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture. I'm Joni Albrecht, Director of the John Marshall Center for Constitutional History and Civics here at the museum. And before I introduce our speakers, I have just a few announcements. Um, first, September is Virginia Spirits Month and the VMHC is celebrating um, in fine tradition with the return of our Virginia Distilled Festival this Saturday, September 9th at 6 p.m. Uh, the event will feature spirits produced by distillers from around the Commonwealth with live music, food trucks, after hours access to the museum's newest exhibition, Apollo. Next Monday, September 11th, VMHC members can enjoy a relaxing evening at the Virginia House Gardens. I hope you'll join us for live jazz at our Members Monday event. Uh, you do need to register and also plan to bring a blanket and picnic. Um, and finally, here in the forum next Thursday, Gregory May will present on his new book, A Madman's Will, John Randolph, 400 Slaves, and the Mirage of Freedom. You can find, about, uh, find out more about all of these events by visiting our website, virginiahistory.org. And now it's my pleasure to introduce today's esteemed panelists. Dr. Lindsay, Lindsay Chervinsky is Senior Fellow at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. She is a historian of the presidency, political culture, and the government, especially the president's cabinet. Lindsay is the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, and the co-editor with fellow panelist Matthew Costello of Morning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture. Dr. Matthew Costello is the Vice President and Interim Director of the David M. Rubenstein Center at the White House Historical Association. He previously worked on the George Washington Bibliography Project for the George Washington Papers at the University of Virginia. His first book, The Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President, was a finalist for the George Washington Book Prize. And Dr. Jeffrey Engel is professor and director for the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Jeff is an award-winning scholar and teacher and an expert on the US presidency and American diplomatic history. He taught at the University of Pennsylvania and Texas A&M before moving to SMU. He has written or edited six books, including Into the Desert, Reflections on the Gulf War, The Fall of the Berlin Wall, The Revolutionary Legacy of 1989, and The, Diary, the China Diary of George H.W. Bush, The Making of a Global President. George also contributed to Mourning the Presidents. And now will you join me in welcoming our panelists for today's discussion. Well, thank you so much to uh, the Virginia Museum of History and Culture for having us and for that lovely introduction. We're really excited to be here and to share this with you. Of course, there is a good smattering of Virginia presidents in this volume as there should be. I think a good place to start and where we usually start this volume is to think about where it came from and, and why we did it. It's a, it's a rather unusual topic. And so Matt, perhaps you could start by um, sharing with the audience how it is that we came up with this idea and why we decided it would be a good one. Sure, so, uh, you know, Lindsay uh, was formerly my colleague at the association and uh, in 2018, you know, the country saw the passing of both a former first lady in uh, Barbara Bush, and then later that year, the passing of former President George H.W. Bush. And so throughout that year, uh, we sort of went through it twice, but there was a lot of public interest, media interest in funerals of first ladies, state funerals of former presidents. What does that look like? What are those traditions? What is that history? But then more importantly, as we were sort of commenting on these things, um, but also having sidebars and speaking amongst ourselves, sort of taking a long look at that dialogue. Uh, you know, how is George H.W. Bush being remembered right now at this moment? And 
thinking about how that will change moving forward. And what Lindsay and I both observed was that it seemed as though, uh, certainly, you know, you, you can talk about George H.W. Bush's accomplishments, uh, you know, from his time uh, as, a, as a pilot, all the way up to his service as the 41st president of the United States and everything in between. But it seemed as though that there was an especial emphasis placed more on his character. And, uh, you know, from our perspective, it seemed like it was more or less being used uh, as a means, as a foil to compare George H.W. Bush with then the current president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump. And so we became interested then in this question of presidential passing, that immediate period of mourning. So how do Americans from all different types of backgrounds respond to that historic passing? And then how does that conversation evolve over time? You know, what people choose to remember when the president passes versus five years, 10 years, 20 years later, how do we measure that? How do we analyze that? And that is what gave birth to this volume. Uh, and we detailed 12 different presidents, some of them passing in office, some of them passing after leaving office, but also looking at how those deaths impacted Americans and then how their legacy has evolved and changed since then. And the way we went about putting it together is we wanted to make sure both Matt and I originally were trained as um, 18th and early 19th century historians. And so we were reminding our colleagues that indeed the, the 19th century does exist. And so we really wanted to have um, some chronological balance. We wanted to make sure it wasn't just a 20th century volume or a 21st century volume. We wanted to make sure, of course, we had to have presidents like Lincoln and Kennedy, because if you're talking about presidential death and mourning, how do you leave out Lincoln and Kennedy? Mm -hmm. But we didn't want to be repeating what everyone else had said, and we wanted to offer something new and to make sure we were covering some of the presidents that maybe people didn't know as much about or a part of the story that they didn't know as much about, so that we were contributing something new. And lastly, we wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that the people who participate in the writing of history, the crafting in, of memory and legacy, are not just historians or journalists, but they're professors and they're people working at presidential libraries. They are graduate students and public historians. And so we wanted to make sure we had balance of people who were coming at it from a lot of different angles. And I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, so I'm sorry if I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. Um, but I know that in, you, know, you have written a ton about Bush 41, but we also knew him personally and were asked to do a lot, of the, a lot of the commentary, actually, that we were sort of talking about. What was it like trying to bring together someone's life in sometimes you know, a 30-second soundbite and also with, with the acknowledgement that everything you said was going to be sort of taken as a judgment on the current moment? Uh, it's a great question, actually. Um, and I appreciate the, the opportunity for spontaneity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me, I'm glad you said that. That's well, let me, let me also begin by saying thank you for hosting us. Uh, and especially, I'm always thrilled to be introduced by somebody associated with John Marshall, since my son is named Marshall, not coincidentally, and has a picture of John Marshall on his bedroom wall, uh, which, no pressure. You know, uh, in any event, uh, you know, it, I think talking about George H.W. Bush, having worked with him, and I had a marvelous opportunity to, we basically co-wrote a book together, and then I um, was with him a lot as I was researching 10 years worth of his foreign policy. Actually, his foreign policy was four years. It took me 10 years to research it. In fact, I used to joke, not around him, but I used to joke that I'm the only one around here who was glad he didn't win a second term uh, because I don't have another 10 years of my life to <laughs> devote to this. Uh, in any event, um, I, I found myself as I was writing that those books about him, having the same thought that I did when I was on TV talking about his funeral, which was whenever I found myself saying, I wonder what the president would think about that sentence, I would stop because that's not my job. My job is to write what I think about the sentence and what the historical evidence tells me about the sentence. And if I'm thinking about how he is going to receive it as a human being, then I'm clearly not giving the public or the academic community my full attention. And same with when, when he passed away, that I think you guys are exactly right that the entire conversation about H.W. Bush's funeral 
was actually about President Trump. Um, just the fact that there were so many references to H.W. Bush's military service um, as a you know, contradiction, obviously, to President Trump never having had a military service was an easy way for people who wanted to put down the current president to bring up what a previous president had done. Now, I, I don't want to denigrate President Bush's military service. It was extraordinarily important uh, to his own formation. He was a young man. He actually was the second youngest naval aviator in the Pacific Theater during World War II. By the way, we used to say he was the youngest, and then some other guy popped up. So uh, <laughs> extraordinarily important for the formation of his thinking. But have I mentioned, he became president of the United States. Like other things mattered over the course of his life, but that was something that they really focused on in the same way that while it was not obviously a presidential discussion, if you recall when John McCain passed away and had a de facto state funeral, again, lots of discussion of sacrifice, lots of discussion of military valor by people who I think implicitly and explicitly wanted to have a contemporary discussion about President Trump and did not actually care as much about getting things right about McCain or Bush as they did of making their own political point. And I have to say, to be very clear, this occurred throughout the political spectrum. This is not just a case of, you know, liberals on one particular news channel, who you can imagine which one you think, uh, deciding that here's an opportunity to insult the president. This also occurred in other venues as well, um, much, much more right-wing, much more conservative, kind of people who, especially when President Bush died, who you would anticipate would have been enthusiastic supporters of President Trump, also used it as an opportunity to talk about what they thought a virtuous president might be, recognizing, I think implicitly, that Donald Trump it was, uh, and maybe will be again, an unusual president. People kind of like usual presidents in some ways. It, it gives them a sense of comfort. So all of that is a very long-winded answer to say, um, there's no way to think about writing the past, certainly not for someone you knew, but for anyone, without thinking about the contemporary context. Well, I love that because in the H.W. Bush chapter, which was written by Warren Finch, who was the former director of the Presidential Library, and who was actually responsible for working with the Bush family and making sure that all of the ceremony around it actually took place, he emphasized that former President Bush actually really wanted, the, at least in terms of his um, the exhibits, what was what was emphasized in the library, wanted that military piece. Mm -hmm. And I think that theme of what, what presidents want to emphasize, what their families want to emphasize, is one that has come up um, across the volume and across the centuries of American history that maybe, you know, sometimes presidents have one idea of what their legacy should be, and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong, and sometimes the, the families have an idea. So, um, Matt, maybe you could talk a little bit about that theme and some of the other mm -hmm. chapters, and we'll kind of work our way through some of them um, that had have come up, and and whether either presidents, their plans have gone according to plan, or, or families' input, any of those things. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think it makes sense to start with the first, uh, that being George Washington. Uh, Washington passed away at Mount Vernon in 1799, uh, December 1799. And, uh, you know, he gave pretty direct instructions about uh, his funeral, uh, that he wanted very little pomp and circumstance, that this was really just supposed to be more of a family affair. Uh, but, you know, George Washington is probably the most famous American in the young United States at that time. And Americans are not going to just let him quietly go into his tomb. Um, and all of a sudden, what they realize is that people start sort of descending upon Mount Vernon. You have local citizens, you have Freemasons, you have veterans, and this becomes a, a massive funeral. And because news of Washington's death travels so slowly, all of a sudden it, uh, the news is starting to reach different pockets of the United States. And then all these different states and cities and uh, government councils are planning their own mock funeral celebrations. And this carries over all the way up to Washington's birthday in February 1800. So what we see is even though he is a former president, it's not really a state funeral as we think of today. We see sort of the early makings of what we would consider uh, when we think about a country in mourning, the passing of a former president, 
the fact that there is spontaneous and, uh, and also planned morning rituals and celebrations happening across the United States. The important thing to keep in mind, though, is that, you know, Washington was in many ways, he was the symbolic glue uh, that held many of these different disparate factions and groups together. And with him gone, uh, you know, kind of opens up that question of how are we supposed to mourn our heroes? How should we mourn presidents? I mean, we've only had, well, we've run our second president at that point. Uh, and the Who first was, one- by the way, really thrilled that there were three years of mourning. I'm sure, say. I'm sure he was probably used to that <laughs> mistreatment by then. But, uh, you know, Washington sort of sets, sets the mold. Um, but I will also say that all of his predecessors don't quite live up to that symbolic stature. And it would take some time, I would say probably until you get up until there's a sitting president of the United States dying in office. Then you'll see funerals that are sort of comparable to Washington's. But everyone in between, they're relatively small. They're at family homes, plantations. There could be some local participation, but you just don't see the national outpouring uh, of grief. Uh, maybe the exception is Adams and Jefferson in 1826, just because, you know, it's it's very symbolic of the, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. But um, until we start seeing presidents die in office, that's when we start to see some of those customs really take root. Well, and even then, I mean, some of the early presidents that die in office, and we think of like William Henry Harrison and, and Zachary Taylor, there is a celebration and they're mm -hmm. in the White House. And so there is the morning custom, but it's not the same outpouring. It's mm -hmm. not the same national experience. I think that doesn't really happen until Lincoln. Um, and that, of course, was such a unique moment in American history, partly because of the timing. He was shot on, on Good Friday. He died in between Good Friday and Easter. The war had, had, was basically just at an end. Um, there was the, the symbolism of the religious sacrifice in, in a very Christian nation at that point. It was the first assassination. And, and Lincoln himself had said, you know, Americans don't really do that. That's not how we express our grievance. So it was such a, you know, it was such a shocking moment. It was such a traumatic moment that I think that really started to catapult what it meant to have national loss after, after Washington. And, you know, I think the next time there, there have been several other moments that have replicated that mm -hmm. off the top of my head. I think of, you know, FDR and Kennedy and some of those. And um, I don't know if you want to jump there. Yeah, Kennedy especially. And, and I think one of the lessons that I take from, from this marvelous book that, that they've put together uh, is both an obvious one and a critically important one, which is that no matter how much a president prepares for their own funeral, by the way, some of them do not. Lincoln did not. Uh, Kennedy did not. You can see the theme here. But even the ones who leave office and prepare for their own th funeral follow Washington's model in the sense that the moment that they die, they're no longer in charge and their memory is manipulated and used by people, even their own families, to say, well, I understand that this is what the old guy wanted. I can read his handwriting. This is what he wanted. Mm -hmm. We're not doing that. Uh, and it really gives you a good sense of, of the finality, if you will, of, of death in many ways. And um, I do have to say one, one funny anecdote from uh, my own experience watching President Bush with this. Uh, there was one point where he and I had a meeting that was right after the meeting where they were reordering the seating chart at his funeral, which they did every you know few months or so. Uh, and I said to him, "Is that weird? I mean, you know, talking about your own funeral, but also like being involved in the funeral to that level of detail. And you know, most people don't get into that level of detail for their funeral." Uh, and he looked at me and said, "You know, when you do it every month, it gets kind of used to it." Yeah. So, okay. Uh, not to take us on another tangent, but my, so my favorite anecdote from, from that chapter is they were having one of these meetings and trying to figure out, they had, a, they had determined that the family and the casket was going to be carried by this special train, because you love trains, special train to College Station. And they were planning the menu for the people that were on the train. And they asked him, you know, what do you want to be served? And he's like, well, what do you want to be served? I'm not going to be eating. I don't care. <laughs> Which, is, is there a vegetarian option? <laughs> <laughs> Which I think, no, you know, this, was, this was College Station. There's no vegetarian option. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think, you know, I guess if you happen to be meeting every month, a sense of humor about it is, is a good place, a good place to begin. 
Um, I think that the Kennedy example brings up another pretty interesting dynamic, which is, you know, to your point that the Camelot concept was something that was actually a creation after, after he passed away. But the response to Kennedy's death and, and the chapter by Dr. Sharon Conrad is, is excellent. And it looks at the memory of Kennedy in the Black community and how different that was from a lot of other Americans and, and why. Um, and so that actually is one of the, the pillars of the volume is how do different communities remember people differently? How do their different experiences shape their, their memory and their mourning? And how are they able to craft their own legacy or to try and craft the president's legacy? Um, so the, the Kennedy example is a great one where they really felt that he had been assassinated for them, for civil rights. And um, Sharon does an amazing job bringing in material culture items that demonstrate that commitment in that a lot of families had pictures of Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and they were often next to either Lincoln or, or Jesus. And so it was sort of like this trinity of, of or the, figures. Or the Pope. Or the Pope, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, no, so no subtlety in this case. <laughs> like, like the Fab Four. Yeah. Um, and, but that, that's not the only chapter that tackles that. So Matt, do you want to share some of the mm -hmm. other? Books? Yeah, so I, I think one of the, uh, the chapter that I think I enjoy most as an editor, uh, because it really sort of reversed how all of us were really, I think, beginning to approach the idea of mourning a president was uh, Andrew Davenport's chapter on Thomas Jefferson. Now, if you don't, if you never heard of Andrew, Andrew is the manager of the Getting Word Project at Moncello. He is also a Hemings descendant. And so he approached uh, the memory of Jefferson very differently. He approached it really as a family history, talking about uh, well, what did Jefferson's death mean to white Americans, but also what did it mean to the people that he enslaved at Monticello? And for them, you know, they wanted Jefferson to stay alive because if Jefferson was alive, their community stay intact, their families would stay intact. And uh, he talks about an instance where Jefferson gets, I think, hurt in a carriage accident. And uh, he describes that enslaved people were running to greet him when he got there, that they were so happy that he was okay. But Andrew points out that you know, this was a fear that enslaved people live with. If anything happens to our owner, you know, who knows what will happen to our families. And from his own personal story, I mean, it, it's just a very harrowing, traumatic story about his family being separated, sold, uh, displaced. And, uh, but really, uh, it's, it's an interesting twist that now he has come back. You know, he's, he is one of the descendants uh, who now works at Monticello, who is part of this process of talking about Jefferson, his legacy, his paradoxical nature, you know, how, how can he be the architect of the Declaration of Independence while at the same time, over the course of his life, enslaving 600 people? Well, now you have that voice there mm -hmm. uh, to be the voice for those ancestors, but also to talk about Jefferson's legacy. Um, so his chapter, I thought, was particularly interesting because, um, you know, just to contrast it with my own, I, I looked at Theodore Roosevelt and mine dug much more into Roosevelt's own family and then private organizations that wanted to create historic sites related to Theodore Roosevelt because this was a place that they could encourage civic education, following Roosevelt's principles. And if you've been keeping tabs in the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library, which they are constructing out in uh, Medora, North Dakota, uh, we see a, a, a repeat, you know, we, we see this, hap this coming back again where uh, another private institution is is stepping forward and then sort of inventing a site to talk about Theodore Roosevelt's legacy of, of conservation, citizenship, uh, and the principles that guided his life and his presidency. So just if anyone isn't familiar with the story of what happened after Jefferson's life, um, his estate was in incredible debt. I think estimates today say it was about $2 million. And the state was immediately basically forced into auctions. So the house was sold off and then all any, any property was sold off. And that included, I think, 220 maybe um, enslaved individuals. And some were able to find 
um, new owners in the Charlottesville area so they could stay near their families. And others, the vast majority, were sold into the Deep South, and those families were really widely fractured. Um, and so Andrew does a phenomenal job of sort of tracing some of those stories and then pulling them back together. And I think it really is, in some ways, a, an inspirational outcome, given mm -hmm. how, how dark the story is. But there's also, I think, in your chapter, you do such a nice job of there's there is this component where as a society, we have, of course, evolved. Our, our values have, have evolved and changed. Who we consider to be citizens, who is included in the American story, has evolved and changed. And so no president is going to look the same under the, the glare of 2023 as they would look in 1903 or 1803. And families often play a really big role in how they want to, to update that legacy or maintain that legacy or bring it into the 21st century. And you start your chapter with the, a story about, I don't know if anyone had seen the statue that was in front of the Natural Museum in New York. Natural History. Great, should have thought of that before I started the sentence, but thank you, um, <laughs> Natural History Museum. And it's a, it's a statue of Roosevelt on horseback and it has two men standing next to him and one is supposed to look like a Native American and one is supposed to look like an African man. And um, at the time it was, I don't really know what it was supposed to intend. I can tell you what it was supposed to intend. Well, I know it what it subtle. looks like now. <laughs> was, is it the same same? same yeah. Okay. I mean, so is, it's, can I just? I love this this image <laughs> of this statue because every now and then you can show an image to a large group of students, and you know they're going to get it because this one there's no subtlety. You know, this is Theodore Roosevelt, big white guy, on a horse, leading other peoples to civilization. Yeah, so as we say, if you look at it now, it really does look like the, this hierarchy. And the family worked with the museum to try and find a way to contextualize it, mm -hmm. to say, you know, can we do an exhibit on it? Can we do, can we put up signs? But because of where it was, and it's not like the statue, like some statues have, have no artistic value. This is a nicely made statue. The artist mm -hmm. did a good job. But they couldn't figure out how to contextualize it in front of the museum. And so the family and, and the museum finally mm -hmm. and the community finally agreed that they didn't want to destroy it, but they are going to send it to the president's library that they're building where it can be built into a space where it can be contextualized all in, in one on one plane in one room. Um, and I think that's such a perfect example of, of how families have to play a role in this ongoing legacy building, but that we also have to acknowledge that as a society, sometimes we do have to continue to update and evolve. Well, and I think it also speaks to Jeff's earlier point that a president or former president may very specifically state, I want this or I don't want that. Uh, but all that sort of goes out the window when they stop mm -hmm. taking breaths of air. And then people make these decisions for them. And Theodore Roosevelt had previously told people that he wasn't interested in statues, uh, that he didn't want anything like that. Uh, so this flew in the face of that. Uh, it, it was also done um, in 1940. So, you know, Roosevelt's been dead for two decades. Um, so this is quite removed from his actual passing. Um, ironically, and it kind of comes up here and there in the chapter, uh, you can almost get a sense of sort of the tension between the current president at that time, who was a different Roosevelt, uh, and all this adulation for Theodore Roosevelt. And uh, I think that rivalry between... <laughs> Uh, the Long Island Roosevelt's and the Hyde Park Roosevelt's is very much there because FDR sides uh, with memorialization efforts for Thomas Jefferson on the Tidal Basin. Uh, it is FDR's push to create that commission because there was a movement to try to put Theodore Roosevelt near the National Mall. And of course, this opened up debate about, well, he just passed away. He's still sort of affiliated with the modern Republican Party. Is he worthy to be in the likes of Washington, Lincoln, et cetera. And, uh, and so FDR sort of short circuits all of it. And he says, you know, we need to go with somebody who I really like, a Democrat, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and we'll put Jefferson there instead. And so again, it speaks to not only Roosevelt's own family giving the green light, Edith Roosevelt giving the green light to create the statue, but then also his extended family playing a role in sort of the placement of where this memorialization will take place. And there's one other element that I think is really important on top of this. Um, not only were they giving a green light, they were giving the money for it as well. 
So uh, they were huge benefactors of the Natural History Museum. Mm -hmm. So it's not as though the Natural History Museum could turn around and say, we'd prefer not to have this interesting statue uh, <laughs> in front of the Roosevelt Room. You know, so. And you'll see more and more of these family members too show up at things like cornerstone ceremonies. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, sometimes it did, the support didn't necessarily have to be financial, but it was about visibility, right? Mm -hmm. You know, being able to give the family stamp of approval for a building project, a statue, a memorial, I mean, then it helped raise additional money if you were gonna build anything else around it. Well, one of the other chapters that I think the family is so important, especially because of his post-presidential life, is the Reagan chapter. Um, the Reagan chapter was written by Chester Patch, and I will say, you know, anyone who reads the Reagan chapter probably knows what's going to happen, and yet I was still in tears when I finished it because it's, I think, ex just exquisitely written. Um, but because of the way that Reagan, of course, had to spend the last several years of his life, his family was was extra essential to to that process because he, you know, they were really making his choices. Um, was there anything in particular? I know you've you've thought about Reagan, you've written about Reagan that you. Watched. Well, I mean, the other thing that the Reagan <clears throat> family had to deal with, in some ways, the Theodore Roosevelt family had to deal with as well. I think was their president had become larger than life. And in particular, frankly, during the last couple of years of his life, when it was no longer making public appearances, that actually enhances your image as someone who is larger than life, psychologically. Uh, and they, I think, did a marvelous job at his funeral of trying to remind people that he was a human being and not just this incredible cultural icon, especially for the Republican Party. And, and um you know, as you probably know, the next Republican debate, if I'm not mistaken, is going to be at the Reagan Library. Mm -hmm. um, this is important because Reagan used to be, up until the days of Trump, Reagan used to be obviously the patron saint of the Republican Party. Um, President Trump does not have nice things to say about Reagan. So it's another example of the split that's going on within that party. But I used to tell my students that the single worst thing you could do would be to watch a presidential debate and take a drink every time somebody said the word Reagan. <laughs> uh, and especially at the Reagan Library. Oh, yeah. yeah, so um, I didn't say what they were drinking. I was gonna say, it depends on the beverage. Yeah, so <laughs> they can get very caffeinated, uh, a lot of coffee. Um, all of which is to say uh, that one other element that I think comes through in this book beautifully is the way in which the sites for these graves become pilgrimage sites uh, and also future political sites. So when somebody wants to, a future politician, I don't know, let's say a governor from Florida decides he wants to run for president and wants to take on the mantle of Reagan, guess where he's going to give that speech? It's not hard to figure out. So, it, but again, President Reagan didn't get to decide whether or not a future politician speaks in front of his grave. Yeah. One of the one of the elements of that chapter that I think um, starts to culminate is the role of technology in this process um, as both a constant and a change over time. So Matt started our conversation with Washington and how the news traveled slowly because it had to go uh, by horseback and, of course, and letter and messenger and actually uh, Martha Washington and Tobias Lear, who was Washington's sort of uh, chief of staff ish. Um, sent a, a special rider to Philadelphia to let the president at the time know and to let Congress know. And that was the fastest way you could get news traveled at the time. And then when, you know, we had Lincoln, at that point, there was the telegraph. So you had a much more instantaneous spreading mm -hmm. of news and you had the almost much more of like a weekend of national mourning because people knew pretty quickly. And then by, of course, by the time of Reagan, you had 24-hour news coverage of, mm -hmm. of the processional, of the plane, of the process. And so that has, that has both the, the constant change in technology is, I think, a theme and, and how people use that. I suspect that the next, whatever our next experience is, social media will play a, a large role in mm -hmm. the commemoration, but also in the documentation. So our you know, our presidential library is going to need to capture social media messages to share as part of what the, the national response was. Um, do you want to talk about some other technological elements? 
that have shown up? Sure. So, I mean, I, this process, I think, especially accelerated with Lincoln because uh, not only are you incorporating the train, uh, which has become the preferred method of long distance conveyance, um, but also embalming. And, uh, you know, even though they embalmed Lincoln and they, I feel like they kept embalming and they kept adding things, they, they made it part of his return to Springfield. They kept stopping at all of these major cities along the way. In many ways, it was very similar to the route that he took mm -hmm. for his 1861 inauguration. And uh, they would stop in these cities, you know, uh, Harrisburg, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Chicago, and they would take Lincoln off of the train and they would take him to a public building, uh, city hall, and they would, they would put him on display, uh, very similar to what we see today in the rotunda of the United States Capitol. And so they extended the mourning period so people could physically go and see the president and see his remains in, in repose. And so that extended that entire process several weeks. And, uh, and so then we, we see this, it's not just about their immediate passing in the news, but now even the mourning process itself is getting longer because of technology. Because not only can people get the news more quickly, uh, but they can plan things over greater distances. Uh, they can make these arrangements in real time as opposed to waiting for letters to go back and forth. Um, and then I think, you know, you fast forward to say John F. Kennedy. Um, you know, there's estimates that 95% of Americans were watching that state funeral after the assassination. Could be higher, but I, I mean, I think most people and probably everybody in this room who was alive remembers exactly where they were when they found out when President Kennedy was assassinated. And they probably even remember watching the funeral. Uh, and that was because technology was the television. Mm -hmm. And so that was a way to connect hundreds of millions of Americans and people around the world instantaneously to watch the state funeral. And that was, I mean, when we're talking about participation just in terms of the numbers, I mean, that has to be uh, the most in history until we get to the age of the internet and social media. Well, and that, of course, that, that shapes how we think of it, because most people, I think one of the images that they have of, of the Kennedy funeral is of Jack saluting his father. And we wouldn't have that that visual of the experience if it hadn't been captured on film. Yes, and I was gonna say this also, uh, newsflash, um, not everything about a 24 hour news cycle is great, uh, especially in our current ecosystem. If again, recall President H.W. Bush's funeral, which we keep bringing up, uh, not only because it's an important one, but also it happens to be the most recent that we've had to discuss. Um, think back on if you happen to watch the coverage or if you happen to watch the funeral itself, he actually had two, but let's talk about the one in, in the National Cathedral. Um, how much of the conversation and how much the cameras were fixated on the previous presidents. Mm -hmm. Was Hillary Clinton going to acknowledge Donald Trump? Was Michelle Obama going to shake Melania's hand? None of that has anything to do with H.W. Bush, you know, but the current politics continues to, to drive this discussion. And I think the technology allows for an even more invasive uh, sense of that. And there was also that great uh, viral moment, wasn't it? HW's uh, service dog. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, maybe some of you saw that image. I mean, but that became like an overnight. I think, it, I think it was Sully. Yeah. yeah. And now they have a statue. I think they have a statue of Sully at the presidential yeah. library. Uh, but I mean, like that dog probably had no intention of becoming an icon. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to speak for the dog, but you know. Um, but again, it's another it's another example of how technology has drastically changed how we can connect in real time to not only something that I think is an especially moving moment just as a human, um, but you're connecting that to these bigger ideas of when we're talking about a loss of a leader, who they were, what they represented. Um, and, and so seeing something like that, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out uh, with the next station. So I know Lindsay loves dogs, which is yeah. why I'm interjecting with another dog story. Um, it's for, permitted. Yeah, thank you. Um, for H.W. Bush, he had a service dog that was there and trained for any medical emergencies, as some service dogs can be trained. Uh, little known fact, he had a second dog with him, which actually had been Barbara Bush's dog. That dog was nasty. Uh, and the dog took it upon itself to protect the president in the last few months of his life so that the service dog would be there just quietly sitting 
you know, checking, is he, is he having a heart attack? Is he having a heart attack? Is he having a heart attack? That's what the service dog does. This other little dog, if anybody got within three feet of his wheelchair, would attack. Uh, <laughs> it was really remarkable how, how the dog knew that that was its job. So. <laughs> um, I, I don't have a good transition from there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Yes. But uh, yeah, I, I got nothing. Um, well, we want to leave some time for questions. So kind of want to, as a wrap up question for you guys, we saw the volume as it came together piecemeal and, and read the various chapters, but you kind of got it all at once. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what surprised you the most as you were reading. The drama of several of the chapters, because spoiler alert, it's a book about mourning the presidents, they all die. Uh, and yet, as you point out with Reagan and with others, the drama that can still be drawn out in these stories, I think because it's still living history, I really encourage everyone, not least because we're here in the state of Virginia, to read the chapter about Thomas Jefferson because it encapsulates all the emotions and the passions that Jefferson brings out for us today and is brilliantly written in doing so. So I, I think what's uh, what really impressed me was how the nature of the way we remember funerals, or excuse me, the way we remember presidents through their funerals has evolved uh, also with the course of the presidency. You know, the, the presidency now is a much bigger institution than it was at first in every way, shape, and form, not least of which is, you know, current president has the ability to destroy all human life just on their own whim. Um, hopefully they won't, but George Washington never had that. So the sense in which these presidents, as we remember them, become bigger than life, I think is because we see the awesome power that is invested in them. And we also know no person should have that power. And yet, we give them that power. So remembering is not just about a person dying, it's almost like a demigod dying at this point. Well, that, you know, that was one of the takeaways for me as I was thinking through sort of our relationship as a nation to, to the president. And one of the, the questions that I have taken away from it is, um, are we comfortable with that? Are we comfortable with having these ceremonies, which if you just turned on the television for, you know, George H.W. Bush's ceremony, and then you turned on the ceremony for Queen Elizabeth, we have fewer jewels, but that's about mm -hmm. it. Same, same. Um, fewer robes, too. Less, I would say less cloaks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would like the swords, but nonetheless, um, they look really similar. And I think it's up to every American to decide, because these 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 um, practices are constantly evolving and changing. It's not a static thing. Is that what we want? And mm -hmm. everyone does have a right to think about that and to think about what sort of values do we want to see on display and do we want to see celebrated. And Matt, you know, you alluded that, you know, for the next one, we are going to have another one at, at some point in the nearish future. Um, and, you know, what are you, what would you like to see? Um, well, since I know you're being I, asked, well, I was going to say, I, you know, Jimmy Carter made an announcement about uh, he's no longer going to seek medical treatment. He's going to, you know, consider hospice care moving forward. That was seven months ago. Yep. Uh, I mean, the guy is just well, the, unstoppable. Well, the uh, reason, I mean, what, what people don't appreciate about Jimmy Carter is that he was literally the most competitive person on the planet. So, you know, when he went into hospice, he turned to the doctor and said, what's the record yeah. for staying in hospice? <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, and to your point, I mean, this is something that I think we talked about, um, you know, in the 1960s, probably, I would imagine, as a, uh, as a result of Kennedy's assassination, they put a much more concerted effort into planning state funerals, not only for the current president, but also former presidents. And uh, believe it or not, Herbert Hoover uh, is the first former president to be afforded those full honors, I think in 1964 is when he passes away. Uh, but since then, former presidents have been given the option to have state funerals. And one of the things that I was thinking about when we did the workshop was, is that a good thing? You know, should former presidents have state funerals? When in theory, a state funeral is for a head of state. No problem with a sitting president of the United States, but should a former president 
And then of course, then it begs the question, well, the fact that we've, we've done this now, what does that tell us about the relationship between presidents and the American people? And, you know, is this a good thing? I don't know. Um, you know, time will tell. I, I can say to your Queen Elizabeth example, because somebody asked me this at a different book event, they made a similar comparison. And I said, I would say the key difference here is that presidents and former presidents are guided by precedents and traditions, but they are not bounded by them. So that would be a key distinction there. You know, they could still do everything as George H.W. Bush did, or you know, I would anticipate President Carter maybe doing things a little bit differently. Um, it's just a question of whether or not you know he wants to play into this. His whole career has been, you know, he is this guy from Plains, Georgia, who was able to climb into politics, was able to become president. Again, he 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 never really liked the pomp and circumstance of the presidency. He sort of shunned it, rejected it, and he continued to do that in his post-presidential life. So the question is, will he continue with that streak and maybe doing something very modest? Or alternatively, will he feel like, you know, everybody talks about me as a post-president and nobody talks about my actual presidency. Mm -hmm. And I want to remind them that I was president of the United States. I mean, I could see that as an alternative because, and I'm sure all of you heard this when the hospice announcement came out, people immediately started talking about Jimmy Carter as the most successful post-president president. Well, how do you think Jimmy Carter felt about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so with that, we would love to take your questions. There are two microphones, um, so please raise your hand. We are happy to talk about anything in the volume or presidents in general. Um, Here, my dad talked about FDR's uh, death. It seemed so personal, mm -hmm. like he lost a family member. Absolutely. Thank you so much for asking that question. We didn't really talk much about FDR, which was an oversight because there's a fantastic FDR chapter by David Woolner, which talks about that very thing, which is that for a lot of Americans, FDR was the only president they remembered because he was in office for so long and in office for the New Deal and the Great Depression and World War II. And so if you were on the younger side, he was really the only president you you knew you had memory of and mm -hmm. so when he died it was as though a father figure had died mm -hmm. it was as though it was life-shattering it was earth-shattering because he had been such a stable force and um his mourning process in some ways sort of borrowed from lincoln's and that he died in georgia and so took the train up to dc and then to new york and people lined the tracks on the way to pay their respects so it was very much a, a national experience in mm -hmm. that way and I think, you know, he was the first president, you know, for Americans to really know his voice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he did about 30 fireside chats, but, you know, he talked to the American people through all these crises. And the way that he spoke to people, I mean, he was just a born communicator. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the advent of radio, more and more Americans have these things. And to hear the, pres the president's voice and to hear him calm them, talk them through these things, prepare them for war, and then all of a sudden to not only lose that leadership, but to lose that voice was pretty traumatic. Um, and, uh, you know, Roosevelt had told his son that, you know, he did not want a state funeral because, well, the American boys were fighting overseas. Uh, he didn't think it was appropriate. That's also part of the reason why for his fourth inauguration, uh, they just do it at the White House. Uh, they don't have a formal inauguration. Now, there's also some great stuff in there about his health mm -hmm. because, yes, it was a wartime measure, but also Franklin Roosevelt wasn't in great health. In fact, uh, there were uh, doctors that advised him, and one doctor in particular that advised him that he shouldn't seek re-election, uh, but he proceeded anyway. So, you know, all these things I think tell us more about uh, how Americans respond to the passing of the president in wartime. Uh, and also, you know, this is really sort of the first, uh, you know, well, Americans had fought in global wars before, but, you know, a global war where the Americans are really sort of setting the stage for what's to come after the war. And everybody always thought that Roosevelt would be a key part of that conversation. Roosevelt did. And to lose that uh, was particularly traumatic. So when I was reading the George Washington chapter, um, I thought it was very interesting that after he passed, a 
lot of memorabilia came out. And when Lincoln passed away, you know, people were mm-hmm. running the shutters at Forest Theater just to get a piece. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how like the merchandising and the memorabilia has changed over the presidents yeah. over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. So the Zachary Taylor chapter has an interesting uh, piece about the snuff boxes that were produced after his death. And um, the the point of the snuff boxes was that they really presented him as a general, as a wartime hero, because his very short presidency had been so lackluster that they were attempting to find the thing that people were, were willing to celebrate. Um, but I think that that concept of the memorabilia, it, you know, is is something that we have seen from the very beginning, and we and we still see. You know, we were talking about the Queen. It's a way for people to feel part of the process. It's a way for people to feel a sense of belonging, um, to to feel that they have are somehow contributing or or to to hold on to that. I don't know that we was there a lot of stuff around HWs. Was there a lot of memorabilia stuff produced? Oh yeah. Um... If there's money to be made, stuff will be produced. That's uh, but it, it, one other thing to, to note about the changing of the memorabilia, if you will, and the merchandising is it really does, again, demonstrate the way the presidency has changed, but also how, how we have changed. So, uh, for example, um, we in our 21st century society do not have the same relationship to dead bodies that people in previous millennia did. So easiest example of this is, you know, go to most medieval churches will have some form of relic. What is the relic? Relic is usually a piece of bone. Maybe maybe the person's, maybe not. We don't know. But the idea of saving a piece of bone and giving other pieces of that person out to other churches, we kind of, right, you snicker, we, we kind of rubs us the wrong way. But again, this was something that was over the course of American history and evolution. So a good example of this is, uh, again, with Lincoln, John Hay, who had been one of his two wartime secretaries during the Civil War, continues to be an extraordinarily important person within Republican Party politics through the rest of his life, ultimately winds up being Secretary of State. Uh, John Hay used to give a ring to every successive Republican presidential nominee that had a piece of Lincoln's hair in it. The idea being you need this direct connection. And by the way, that was not uncommon. I mean, people put hairs in rings a lot. Uh, and again, we don't typically. So these these things do change with the cultural changing as well. Yeah, Mount Vernon does have a pretty extensive collection of locks of Washington's hair. Um, I always used to joke that if you put them all together, I mean, Washington must have been some kind of Sasquatch. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't. Are they all his hair? Uh, are they all Lincoln's hair? I mean, obviously, our definition of authenticity and provenance has changed. But I think what's more important is the belief, mm-hmm. right? Because people were willing to actively pursue these things, purchase these things, produce them, give them as gifts. And I think they all speak to Lindsay's earlier point that it was about owning a piece of history, owning a piece of that president and their legacy. And today we don't, you know, we don't necessarily do that with hair or body parts or anything like that. But, uh, you know, people can buy commemorative plates, cups, uh, you know, to Jeff's point, if there's money to be made uh, on the tragedy or on the passing. Uh, wow. And then if there's Americans to consume it. Mm-hmm. Any other question down here, Ben? Yes, you've mentioned a couple of the first ladies. I was wanting more information about how they influenced the morning, either right afterwards or years later. Um, so, of course, it depends on the president. You know, Jefferson's wife had died quite some time ago, so his his daughter was really sort of the the person left. Uh, Martha Washington was the one who was trying to implement his wishes, um, and then the American people had their their own say. Uh, Mary Lincoln had less of a role than one might anticipate. Um, partly because she was really struck by grief and, and partly, I think, because her uh, Lincoln's cabinet wasn't all that fond of her and sort of sidelined her from that process. Um, some of both, I think, in that way. Um, the, and in terms of some of the other, I mean, of course, Jacqueline Kennedy was instrumental in shaping every single element of how 
Kennedy was remembered and um, the the ceremony and the passing and even, you know, how she she didn't change her clothes when she was on the plane um, when LBJ took the oath for for intentional reasons. And so she was, of course, central to that. And Nancy Reagan is, is you know, I think the same. Nancy was really mm-hmm. um, central to ensuring that what Reagan had had articulated when he was able to do so came to came to pass. But she also was trying to craft the image of mm. of Reagan and mourning in America. M-O-R-N-I-N-G, Morning in mm. America, um, and, you know, ensuring the American people had a role. So I think, you know, first ladies are essential to this process. And Barbara Bush, I think, had no had no expectation that she would go first. But that's, yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, but one of the interesting elements of the chapter is that because she did, it almost served as a dress rehearsal because so many of, it was almost just like a slightly reduced version um, so they really can't be separated from the story. And I would just say, generally speaking, uh, you know, the first ladies outlived the presidents, uh, which, I mean, there's a number of different factors that go into that. Uh, but they are the ones who typically survive, and they're the ones who are sort of left to, whether they like it or not, to carry on the legacy. And so you'll see, it's not in the chapter, but a great example of this is if you, if you go to D.C. and you go to the Woodrow Wilson house, uh, the second Mrs. Wilson, Edith Wilson, you know, she continued living in that house, and she was essentially the first curator of all these different things that came from the Wilson presidency. And she lived until the 1960s, might have been 1962, 63. But she was essentially, she kept his room exactly as it was when he lived there. I mean, even like his hair is still in the hairbrush. I mean, again, speaking to like the hair and the, you know, the bodies thing, maybe there's a little change over there. But uh, the fact that she played such a central role in, maintaining everything that her husband touched, used, anything that was part of his administration. Um, you know, she played a key role in those decades. And that is not an unusual story. I mean, it usually is the women who are not only thinking about preservation at the moment, but they're also thinking about preserving history for the future. Uh, and that's true at the White House too, uh, where usually it's the first ladies who are more concerned about that versus the presidents themselves. I think we have time for maybe one more question. just wanted uh, if you had any thoughts on disgraced presidents like Richard Nixon in the service for Richard Nixon with all the living presidents attended. Well, um, so I think one of the challenges we had in this chapter is, you know, who who to include and to who not to include. And so we didn't end up including Nixon, but we did include Hoover. And the parallels are interesting, um, probably not what Hoover would have wanted. But um, the parallels are interesting because both were remembered for something during their presidency. You know, Hoover, for I think real conservative ideological reasons, believed that he should not interfere with the Depression. And then, of course, Nixon's resignation. And no matter what they did afterwards or before, that was sort of the one word, one sentence on their, you know, their political legacy. And both tried really, really, really hard to change that mm-hmm. and worked really, really, really hard to change that with sort of, I think, in Hoover's case, mixed success. And, and Nixon certainly was, I think, a valued advisor for a lot of people, perhaps behind the scenes. But Nixon um, elected not to have a lot of the, the state pomp and circumstance, whether he was asked not to or personally chose. I can't say. I don't know if you guys know, um, but he did not have the big showy. I think, well, it, I think it was his preference. Well, he did have the other presidents there, the other former presidents. And he the just didn't president. want to be in D.C. Yeah, but, you know, this is really interesting. Um, obviously, Nixon's legacy is complex, especially for those who run the Nixon Library. Uh, when you go to the Nixon Library, and I encourage you to do so, it's a very nice place, they have a foyer which has a couple of different quotes on the high on the walls. You know how that goes. One from Nixon, another from Nixon, but then there's another one from Bill Clinton from his eulogy that says, and I'm paraphrasing here, the time to remember Nixon as only a criminal has gone. Let's remember his entire life. So how interesting it is that the words from the eulogy trying to rehabilitate a president at his funeral by the way, it would be rude to say something rude at his funeral. 
becomes so important to the mission of the entire institution, it literally gets etched in stone. Well, I think, and I think that's such a great point just to wrap up on, you know, the process of mourning and history should be seen as two different things because we've all been at a funeral where people are saying glowing things about the person and you're like, not, not the person I know. It's not my memory of how no. that works. Um, and the same is true for presidents. You're not going to go look at their family and say, this person did awful things. I mean, you might be thinking it, but you're probably not going to say it. And so it is, I think, important that we recognize that it's, you know, part one, and then it will continue to evolve as it should, and the history will continue to be written. Um, well, thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for hosting us. Thank you. It's been a delight. So Matt, Lindsay, and Jeff will be um, out in Commonwealth Hall to sign books. So I hope you all will join us there. Copies are available in the bookstore. Thank you so much for coming. Okay.